So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians, so turn with me in the Scriptures to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We, last week had baptism service. Were you guys as blessed as I was by our time together, just hearing testimonies of what the Lord has done? And then... Uh, the week before that, what we did is we had the opportunity to do, give an overview of the book of 1 Thessalonians, and now we are going to just walk chapter by chapter through the book. If you're new with us, it may help you to know that our practice is to do what we call expositional preaching, which means the largest sort of lifting in that is to just to move systematically through books of the Bible, and we do that because we don't want to skip over portions of it. We want to receive what the Bible calls the full counsel of the Word of God, and so from time to time, we'll talk about topics that are pertinent it, maybe culturally, and need some addressing, but more often than not, what you'll find when you join us here is that we're going to be working through the Scriptures, and so we are working through now beginning a time where we will spend this semester working through 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and as uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, and today we begin with chapter 1. Uh, well, as I was preparing this week, I got to thinking about the fact that, you know, if you're a parent, you have things in your home that you hope your kids emulate someday when they establish their own homes, and then because we're rightly, hopefully humble. We also recognize there's things about our homes that they're going to, when they form their own, we might hope they don't reiterate those things or repeat those things. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and that's good. It's good for parents to remember that so that as our kids launch out, we don't get offended when they think, you know, I want to do this a little differently than mom and dad did it. There's things that Amanda and I talk about regularly. We're like, we hope the kids do it a little differently than we are doing it. We're trying to learn and grow. But there's moments where I promise you, uh, in my home, there's moments where I find like, uh, my, my walk with the Lord, like, I don't know what happens, but something kind of disappears. And can I tell you that one of those moments for me with my kids is trying to get them in the car to go somewhere. Like something happens when we're trying to get the kids into the car. I don't like being late. That's part of it. I like to get there on time. And trying to get three children ready and in the car is like hurting cats. How many of you would agree with that? Yes, it can be very challenging. I have one kid who's always the first in the car. In fact, like two weeks ago, I was running around the house. I was like, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go. And my impatience comes out. This is something I would hope my children would not emulate in me. And I'm working with the Lord to see sanctification come to that part of my life. And I'm like, let's go, come on, we gotta get in the car. And the two that are invariably the latest ones are kind of starting to move, albeit slower than I would like, and they're moving towards the car. And the one who's always in the car, or always like, you know, ready first, I'm like, where is this child? What, I'm running around the house going, where are you? Let's go. I'm shouting up the stairs, looking for 10 minutes. She had been in the car the entire time. To which I walked out and said, that's why you're my favorite. <laughs> not, not really, do not repeat that to my children, all right? Here's the thing, as you encounter the scriptures, one of the things you're gonna find is that there's going to be books of the Bible, in particular the New Testament letters, and some of those are where we're learning from the example of those that, that are receiving that letter. There's a good example to be followed, and then other ones, there's examples, it's like learn, from, learn what not to do from this letter, right? So 1 Corinthians is kind of one of those letters. It's a bit of a don't follow the example of the Corinthians. They're gonna get a lot of correction in that letter. They need a lot of correction. And in receiving that, we're kind of learning what not to do and by virtue then what to do. Does that make sense, yes? But other letters of the Bible, you're gonna find like the book of Philippians where we're gonna learn a lot from the example of the Philippians. And 1 Thessalonians is one of those letters, which is part of what makes it really fun because there's very little correction that 
Paul is going to offer to the Thessalonians. There's some instruction he wants to give them as it relates to the return of the Lord, which is the major theme. It's touched on in every chapter of this book and every chapter of, the, of 2 Thessalonians. So he talks a lot about the Lord's return. It's the major theme in the whole book. And so he's going to give them some instructions, some, hey, you need to know this. But by and large, this whole letter is overflowing with praise for the Thessalonians. He's so pleased with them, and he wants to encourage them in who they are already being, which is why we said the major theme uh, could be stated this way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6 says, keep awake. And keep awake literally means be ready for Jesus to come back at any moment, right? Be ready for Jesus to return. So how do you live in light of that so that you're prepared for it? That's what Paul is really kind of emphasizing in this whole letter. But it's telling that he doesn't say, Thessalonians, you need to wake up. He doesn't say that, does he? Like he says to the Galatians, who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? You wouldn't want to get that in a letter from Paul, would you? Oh my goodness, no. But what he says to the Thessalonians is not, you foolish people, or you are, you are asleep, you need to wake up. He says what? Keep awake. In other words, you're already doing this. Do more. Keep going. Keep striving forward in what you are. One, let me just highlight, that's a really good kind of biblical letter to have because it tells us that even though none of us is perfect, there are praiseworthy things that can be found among the people of God, yes? There are things that can be applauded and, and uh, acknowledged and said, yes, this is good, right? So that's 1 Thessalonians. There's a lot of encouragement and praise. And that's what we're going to find in chapter 1. We're going to look at 10 verses today. It's the entirety of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And in it, what Paul is going to do is he's going to lay out all these reasons he is thankful for and ways he can affirm this church. In other words... We can say this. He's saying the church that is awake looks like this. If you want to know what it looks like to live ready for the return of Christ, the Thessalonians are a wonderful example. And so he's going to give us nine marks, nine marks of the church that is awake, that is keeping awake, that is ready for the return of Jesus. Now, side note for you. This is also, this chapter could serve as a master's class in how to truly encourage one another in the faith. Like you're a follower of Jesus. Have you ever felt like some of the encouragement you offer is a little shallow sometimes? Like you might feel like, I just don't know how to encourage in a way that really gets to the heart of what encouragement should be from one believer to another. This is your chapter. I mean, I almost preached it from that angle. I was, I was this close to going, let's just observe the master's class. I'm gonna trust you're gonna get that but I want to show you the marks of the church that's ready for Jesus' return. Some of that is how this encouragement looks. So just recognize that if that's some area where you're like, I need to grow as an encourager, this is a great spot for you to spend a little bit of time. All right, now the other thing I want you to know is when you, if you do some teaching of the Bible, you're often going to take sections of text and you're going to say, okay, I got 10 verses here, and here's the big idea, and then you're going to ask, man, there's a lot here. So do I say a little about a lot of things or do I say a lot about a few things? Yes? There's not a right or wrong there. You could choose to say, okay, I'm going to highlight like three points out of this text that kind of relate to the main, main idea. I'm going to do the first one today. I'm going to try and say a little about a lot of things. And here's why. That's why I've got nine marks for you today. We're going to move pretty quickly through them. None of them, I think, is overly complex. They're relatively simple. Okay? And I wanted you to hear every single one of them. I wanted you to get everything Paul gives in this chapter as an encouragement to say, this is what the church is like, who is ready 
for the return of our Lord. Now, at the end of this, here's gonna be the question. With your life groups this week, do these things mark our church? Now, do they mark you as an individual believer? And do they mark our church? And remember that part of these things marking our church certainly is the responsibility of leadership and how we lead and whether we chart the course correctly, whether we hold to the things that we find here. But just as much of it is related to who you are when you walk out the door today. Whether we are the church that is marked by these things, ready for the return of Christ, keeping awake, has everything to do, or very much to do, with who you are, not just who your leaders are. Yes, fair enough? Yeah? All right, just making sure. All right, good. So let's look at it. We're just gonna take it. I'm not gonna read the whole thing to you at once. We're gonna look at it a piece at a time, verse at a time. So here's number one. Nine marks the church and the believer who is truly awake. Number one, it's a church that wants a moment-by-moment connection with God through Jesus. A church that wants a moment-by-moment connection with God through Jesus. Look at what Paul says as he opens up here in verse one of chapter one. Paul, Silvanus, that's another name for Silas, and Timothy, so this team of disciple makers, this team of gospel workers, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most of the time when you read your Bibles, you might just read right past that verse as kind of like an introduction. That's Paul just introducing. But I want you to catch something here because it's real important going on. Paul's normal way of addressing most of the churches he writes to in his letters. Invariably, he will write and he will talk about his apostleship. He'll say, this is who I am as a minister of the Lord. And then he'll proceed to address the church. And normally what he says is, to the church, I'm writing to the church that is in, and then fill in the blank of wherever they're located, in Ephesus, in Galatia, in Corinth. Yes, you with me? What do you notice that's different here? He doesn't say the church in Thessalonica. He does this with the Colossians as well. It's the only other place where he does this in his letters. He doesn't say the church in Thessalonica. He says the church of Thessalonica, right, of the Thessalonians in God and in Christ Jesus. In other words, what he's pointing out, that word in is a really important, it's like loaded with theological freight. It's loaded with weightiness. Do you know what he's actually saying? He's saying to the Thessalonians right out of the gate, I wanna remind you who you are. You are a church that derives its source of life from a moment by moment connection with God. You know that's been purchased for you by Jesus and you are living hungry to be connected to God. When you come together, the church that is ready for the return of Jesus is a church that comes together to worship God with passion and love and expectation that he will move among them as they gather and as they pray. It's a church that says, I seek the face of the Lord. It's the Psalm 27 prayer. One thing have I asked, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold his beauty, to gaze upon his beauty, to behold him in his temple. It's a church that longs for a moment-by-moment connection with God. The closest parallel is John chapter 15, when Jesus talks about abiding in him. And he talks about it as like a branch abiding in a vine, where the source of life, the source of connection is the vine for that branch. You break it off, it dies. You keep it connected, it lives. And he says, that's what abiding in me is like. That's the parallel to this one word, in God and in Christ Jesus. So the very first thing Paul is doing is actually encouraging them with this subtle word, you are in God. 
I like to buy flowers for Amanda. Uh, I, I just find it fun. I like pretty arrangements of flowers. I like, you know, they, they spruce up the house a little bit. I love to do that. But I never do it if I'm gonna be out running errands for two or three hours. Why not? They will die in the car, right? It feels like the second you get them, like if you buy flowers, doesn't it feel like a race to get home and get them in water? They gotta get them there. I gotta get them there. I gotta get them there. There's a reason that they're in the store not sitting like on a shelf. They're sitting in buckets of water because they need to be in the water in order to live, right? And so you rush home, you fill up the vase, you put the flowers in, and all goes well because your wife says, that's wonderful, thank you, right? If I let them die in the car and hand them to her, much less effective. When he says you are in God and in Christ Jesus, he's telling the Thessalonians, he is your source. You are clinging to him you're drawing life from him. Every decision goes through that grid of what, is it, what does my relationship with God, the fact that I'm in him, say about the choice I'm about to make? Yes? That's the first thing that we see here. It's a, it's a church that is hungry and sees God as its source. Now, second thing. It's a church that overflows with grace and peace for each other. It's a church that overflows with grace and peace. So notice the last cut three words of, chapter, of verse one, when after saying you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, then he says what? Grace to you and peace. So I guess the last five words there. Grace to you and peace. Now this is his common greeting for almost every church in almost every letter. And don't read past this. Every time you read it, just pause and think about what he said. What he's just declared is the entirety of the gospel in those five words. He said to the Thessalonians, you are the recipients of the unmerited favor of God, grace. You are a people who have received grace. And as a result of receiving that grace, you now have peace with God. He's not primarily talking about this internal peace. He's talking about the peace that you have with God. You were at war with him. Now you are at peace with him. And of course, the result of that is an internal peace. It's an internal disposition of, of peace and comfort. But he's primarily saying grace, and as a result of grace, peace. Now get this. When he's saying to them, I, we could paraphrase it this way, I, I wish to you, I offer to you grace and peace. What Paul is saying is you have it with God, and as a result, you have it with me. I will relate to you the way God relates to you. As an object of unmerited favor, and as an object, as a person with whom I am at peace. The church that's ready for the return of Jesus, the church that is truly keeping awake, is a church that relates to one another as objects of grace. Just constantly saying grace, more grace. You've fallen short, let me give you grace. Can I tell you something? There is no sin between two believers that cannot be forgiven when there is true repentance brought forth. There is no sin which cannot be forgiven and should not be forgiven when a true and sincere repentance is offered. That may sound like a strong statement, but it's absolutely true. That's who we are to be. That's who a church is to be. A place where somebody walks in, it's their first time, and they think, man, these people are so generous. They're generous with their praise. They're generous with their time. They seem generous with their affection. They don't withhold from one another. They don't seem to even be hiding from one another their faults and flaws. 
Why, how can you even live that way? How can you live in such a way that you, that you are okay with people knowing your weaknesses? How does that even happen? It happens because you are saturated in an atmosphere which is grace. I received the unmerited favor of God. How could I offer you anything else? How could I offer you anything else? I often wonder as the pastor, when someone new walks in our doors, do they have this overwhelming sense? Almost like, I, I want it to like hit them in the face. Like when you walk in to, um, when you walk into like a bakery and the smell of the baked goods kind of hits you. You, you. Have you had that experience? Oh, isn't it good? I want the smell of grace to hit you in the face when you walk in here. That's a weird way to put that. <laughs> I really, but I want it to be so tangible that we're a people of grace. Now, the other part is peace, that we make peace with each other. We offer that forgiveness. That's the church that's ready, that's awake. The third mark of that, being ready for the return of Christ, is that it's a church full of faith and love and hope. It's a church that's full of faith and love and hope. Look with me at verse two and three. After saying grace to you and peace, he then says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. That kind of sounds like he's praying a lot, doesn't it? Remembering before our God. Oh, okay, so what does he remember? When he goes to prayer, he's just told us, I'm praying all the time for you, and I remember something when I pray. Okay, let's pay attention now. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of what? Hope. Many authors have called these the, the trinity of Christian virtues, faith and love and hope. We find them paired together all the time in the New Testament, and for good reason. They seem to be a summation almost of Christian character. There's many other things that are talked about throughout the New Testament. None are paired together more than these three things, faith and love and hope. We find them in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Perhaps most famously, we find them in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. Now these, things, these three things remain, faith and hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. We find them in Galatians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. We find them in Colossians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. The list goes on and on and on because this is, these are the virtues that get brought forward again and again and again. So the church that's ready for Christ to come back is a church that's full of faith and love and hope. Now listen, Paul singles those out. And let me just say as a side note again that he's praying and as he's praying, he's not running to intercession first. He's giving thanks for them to God. I wonder how often our prayers are like that. My guess is you pray for each other a lot. I hope you do. I hope you're in a life group. I hope you're closely connected to others here and you're regularly praying for one another. But before you run to saying, God, they have a need and I wanna pray for that need, you should do that. But before you do that, what if you said, I am so thankful, God, that I see in them faith and love and hope. You know, what you value about somebody else is reflected in what you thank God for about them. Do we value about one another faith and love and hope, or do we value lesser things? Let's first value about one another that we are a people of faith. The church that's ready for Jesus to return radically trusts him. Whatever the call, whatever the cost of that call, wherever it sends them, whatever they must do, 
whatever they get to do, I should rather say, they radically trust God and move forward in that radical trust. That's the church that's ready for the return of Jesus. And more than that, they're so full of love, just kind of like that grace we just talked about, that there's this sense of like, these people, they just love. They're just, when they, they have, have you ever thought, God, just give me your eyes to see that other person across from me? Just let me see them the way you see them. If, when God answers that prayer, my guess is you're gonna be overwhelmed with love for people all the time. How do I know that? Because God has told us, 1 John, if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, you are a what? You're a liar. In other words, it's so true that love for God produces love for people that you cannot claim to love him if you don't love them. And what's more, what about those who are not of the faith? That's about our brothers and sisters in the Lord. What about Jesus answering, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And he could have stopped there because they didn't ask him what the second greatest commandment was. They asked him what the greatest was. He's answered that question. Jesus, of his own decision, says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God and love for people go hand in hand. The church that's ready for the return of Jesus is full, full of love. It defaults to love. It, it looks for strategic ways to love. It wants to sneak attack you with love. It wants to get love into every facet of every work that it does. And the last thing is that it's full of hope and the steadfastness that hope produces. Look down at verse 10, because here I want you to see something else. The hope he's talking about is the hope that Jesus is gonna return, that there will be a day, as we just sang, when every knee will bow to Jesus. There will be a day that he actually comes back. So here's where in chapter one, we find him talking about the return of Christ, and in verse 10, he says, they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I want you to key in on that word wait there because what he's saying is, in the same way that he's saying, you have this steadfast hope that I thank God for, he's saying in the verses above, he's saying that hope is in this return and you are waiting. It's as if, Thessalonians, you have one eye on heaven and one eye on the earth. You are eager for Christ to return. You are longing for him to return. You're looking to him. Can I tell you that one of the things that this teaches us is that if you want to grow in Christ, you must regularly think about, meditate on, and understand he is coming back. You have to have your eyes on heaven waiting eagerly for him to return. It's a huge part of your growth in Christ to not be so focused on the things the, of today that you lose sight of where you're headed. I, I, you know, I've told you I played a lot of sports growing up and you know that anyone who's played any sport is eventually taught an athletic stance, right? An athletic posture. In other words, it's a balanced uh, posture from which you can do a lot of different things. For me, in basketball, we used to do a drill that had everything to do with squaring up your feet, getting your shoulders square to the basket, being ready to shoot, and then having somebody knock into you to see if you could stay on balance. The goal was, if I push you or shove you or come behind you, have you got enough balance to be able to stay, you know, centered where you need to be, right? Setting your eyes on the return of Christ is the thing that, the church that's ready for the return of Christ 
is a church that is not easily thrown off balance by the circumstances of the world around them. We get bumped into and cajoled and attempted to be deceived and we get, you know, sort of messed with. And in spite of all of it, the church that is ready stays on balance because it has its eyes on the return of Christ. Maybe it will help you. Um, I really love, I grew up in Texas and there we have St. Augustine grass, which is basically a weed that you call grass, right? So it grows on runners, it grows real thick. And if you do it right, it actually kind of looks like a carpet on your lawn and it's pretty drought resistant. You're growing up in the, you know, growing up in the heat of Texas. But when you mow it, it doesn't make any nice lines. It just chops it all down so it looks like this flat piece of carpet. You know what I love about mowing my grass here? I love the lines. Anybody with me, you like the lines? I know you're all thinking of the Dr. Rick progressive commercial where we become our fathers as we become homeowners, right? So, but here's the thing. When you make those lines, right, what happens if I look down at my mower and I go to make my line? What happens to my line? It's all cattywampus, right? As I'm going here, I'm going there. It looks terrible, right? What do I do to make a straight line? I look at the fixed point that I want to go towards. I look in that direction. I turn the mower in that direction and I walk looking at that fixed point. And what happens? Beautiful lines. You can come check out my yard. It looks really good, right? I thought of this illustration last night walking and praying. I was so excited to share it with you. It's true. Keeping our eyes on the return of Christ is setting our eyes on a fixed point that enables us to walk a straight line, to not be thrown to the left or thrown to the right. Straight lines. Straight lines make beautiful lives just like they make beautiful yards. Yeah, it's a little silly. It's okay. But you'll remember it. That's the point. Number four, the church that's ready for the return of Christ is a church that works hard to advance the gospel. It's a church that works hard to advance the gospel. Look at verse three again. He said that he remembers their faith their love, their hope, but let's highlight one other thing in this verse. He says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Do you see what he's getting at there? He's saying, how do I know that you were full of faith? How do I know that you're full of love? Because it produced good work. Because it produced, there's a reason he uses the term labor. He says, you worked hard for the advance of the gospel. I've seen it. The church that's ready for the return of Christ, the church that is keeping awake, is a church that is laboring hard for the gospel. That's what Paul is pointing out to people who, when their heads hit the pillow, every night they're tired because they know they have been hard at work to advance not themselves, but the gospel. In whatever daily tasks, whatever field or industry God has called them into, they go at it as laboring unto the Lord, not as unto man. And in doing that work, they feel the pleasure of God knowing that it serves to advance his purposes in the world. Don't hear me say the only good work is evangelism. That's an important work that Paul is calling us to. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the work that you will go to tomorrow morning, whether it's to be home with your kids as a mother or a father, whether it is to be in the workplace as an engineer, as a teacher, as a school administrator, whatever it may be, that is work that can be done as unto the Lord. And in doing it, in striving after it, you seek not your advancement, but the advancement of his kingdom. 
And you look for opportunities and ways to make your work different and unique so that it pleases and serves him. And in doing that, when your head hits the pillow, you say, that was a day well spent. And I'm tired because of the labor that faith and love have produced in me. A life that is full of faith and a life that is full of love works hard to advance the purposes of God. Number five, it's a church that rests in God's love. It's a church, we just talked about the labor it produces, now let's talk about the rest it produces. Church ready for the return of Christ is one that's resting in his love. Look with me at verse four. It says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now I want you to get something here. It's as if Paul can't help himself. He has to comment about how much God loves them. He wants, to, he wants to talk about it so much that he could just say, there's almost a parenthetical statement here, right? He could say, for we know that you are chosen by God because, and that's what he's gonna say in verse five. Here's how I know you're chosen by God. He doesn't say that. He has to stop and he says, for we know, brothers loved by God, that you are chosen. In other words, what he's saying is, I wanna remind you how much God loves you. I wanna remind you, and, the, and the, the expression of that love that I wanna show you is that he chose you, you didn't choose him. He purchased you, he won you, you didn't seek after him, he came after you, he regenerated you, you responded to his saving work. That's how that salvation occurred, he chose you. Praise God, freely given love, not earned, not because, hey, I was good enough, I was, I was worthy of being an object of his love, I was worthy of being chosen, none of that is true. He says, he chose you because he loved you. That's what defines you, that's what marks you. You are an object of his love. Can I tell you something? I think sometimes we get tired of reminding each other that God loves you. That God loves, like to say to one another, God loves you. Somehow that starts to sound trite, as if it's not that important. Can I tell you, you cannot say it enough. If you have kids, can you tell them that you love them enough? Is it possible? You feel like, ah, I, said it, I said it three times today, that's probably more than enough. Does anybody think that way? No, you say, I can't, I can't say it enough. I can say it again and again, as long as, I mean, I don't wanna be, I wanna be sincere in it, but you cannot, it's impossible. In the same way, it is impossible for us to remind each other too much that God loves each other. That should be the first words out of our mouth in most conversations with each other. If we have to give a word of correction, remind me first that God loves me. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are in the love of God. Yes, do we understand this? Say amen to that? Then remind each other. Never stop. Because that's where rest is found. You want to see growth, you want to see grace, you want to see you know, maturity in the faith, keep remembering that you are an object of God's love rather than his wrath. That's where rest and growth come from. Number six, it's a church that recognizes and imitates mature faith. So just follow with me now. Let's read verse five and then verse six. Paul says, 
We know he has chosen you. Here's how we know. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He's not talking there about the Thessalonians' conviction, actually. That's how I used to read this until I did a little bit of digging here and studying. He's actually talking about when we came, Paul and Timothy and Silas, when we came and we proclaimed the gospel to you, we saw God do amazing things as we were preaching. So we were preaching and the power of the Holy Spirit fell and people were healed. Miraculous works were done. And as that was happening, there was this conviction, convicting work. The power of their spirit was so evidently moving. That's how we know he chose you because of how powerful the work was as it was being proclaimed to you. So what a great reminder for us to remind each other of powerful works of God in our past. Now, then he goes on to say in verse six, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And he's gonna talk about a specific way they imitated them, but I wanna pause there and just say that the first thing I want you to see there is that they recognized mature faith, first in the Lord and then in Paul and in Silas and in Timothy. They recognized it and then they imitated it. It's very important who you choose to imitate. And the church that is ready for the return of Christ is a church that is imitating those who are mature in faith. Now let me just say here that the church, many churches, often make the mistake of appointing leaders, and I don't just mean staff members, I mean leaders in ministries, of appointing leaders because they have either a dynamic personality or because they're good at teaching. Neither of those things are bad. If you have a dynamic personality, great. That's a gift from the Lord. If you're a good teacher, that's great. If you can teach, you better. You should. It's better than teaching falsehood, okay? Teaching the truth matters. But often, churches will say, oh, they're good at teaching facts from the Bible, or they have a dynamic personality, and therefore we'll put them in leadership, and they will overlook a lack of godly character. Where is their meekness? Where is humility? Are they overflowing with love? Are they full of faith? Are they humble? And the thing I wanna say to you, church family, is there are more people than you can count that can teach effectively. And there are plenty of people with dynamic personalities, but neither of those, while they're not bad, neither of those are maturity in Christ. Maturity in Christ displays itself without exception as humility, giving grace, being full of love, being meek and gentle. That is the display of maturity in Christ. And we could go through all the fruit of the Spirit, yes, okay? We can go through all these marks, but I wanna encourage you, imitate mature faith. In this day and age, you can find any leader or teacher to follow that you want because technology has made it possible, and I want to urge you to not just pay attention to whether the person is saying something true, I want to urge you to ask if they display the fruit of the Spirit in declaring the thing that is true. Is there gentleness? Is there love? Is there patience? Is there humility? That's why, and particularly friends who are listening with us online, if you're somewhere else, that's why it's so important to have a church family where you are and to be present because you cannot determine from a country, you know, across the country, whether a leader actually demonstrates those things. 
You only see that in the day-to-day of life. And for those of you who are leaders, in whatever capacity you are, you're all influencing somebody somewhere. Never, ever lean on your dynamic personality or your ability to be skilled in some aspect of teaching or leadership. Recognize that the fire will come, and when it comes, the only way to continue to grow in authority will be, with you if, it will be if you display godly character through the fire. Every time. Your leadership and authority will be taken from you by the Lord unless you display godly character. And it will be hard because you'll display it for a while and you'll think, surely I've done it long enough. And when the pressure is on and when the heat is hot, you will want to let go of that godly character. But friends, cling to it because it is the only reason you have any authority to begin with. True authority. And if you cling to it, you will have more. It may take a time. Cling to it. The church that is ready for the return of God, for the return of Jesus, sees mature faith and imitates it. Number seven, it's a church that holds tight to the gospel no matter the cost. It is a church that holds tight to the gospel no matter the cost. No matter what the pressure from the outside world is, to relinquish the truth of the gospel and all its implications for our lives and every area of our life, or if there's pressure from within to relinquish some part of the gospel because it makes us uncomfortable. The church that is ready for the return of Christ tries with every effort to say, what is the truth of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and how does that apply to every area of life? It puts the gospel as the grid through which everything goes. May not be perfect in its application, but it strains and strives after it. Look at verse six and what Paul says here. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. How? For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. When he says you received the word, he means you received the the word of the gospel about Jesus' death and resurrection. You received it, and then pressure came. You were persecuted, you were afflicted because you held fast to it, and in spite of that affliction and persecution, you didn't let it go. Can you imagine how overjoyed you'd be to be Paul and send Timothy and go, man, they are in the fire, and I am worried because it seems to me like that pressure is too much. The fire is too hot. And for Timothy to come back, which is what happened, and say, Paul, you won't believe it. They are holding fast to the gospel. They're dying. They're being killed. They're losing their jobs. Things are not going well, but they will not shrink back. And when the world says, this is wisdom, they say, no, 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 no. That's the opposite of godly wisdom because this is what the gospel says. And they do it again and again and again. Paul is writing like a proud dad. Oh, you held fast to the word in the midst of much affliction. There's no greater praise to be given to a group of believers. They have held fast. So that's the church that is ready, no matter what. Now, number eight, last two. It's a church that rings out the gospel in their words and by example, now I say that very intentionally, in their words and by example. In other words, it's not just a church who says, we'll just be a godly example. We must speak the gospel. We must say, Jesus crucified and resurrected. You need to believe in him. We proclaim it. We invite you into it. 
He is the only hope. We declare it, we have it on our lips, but we also want to live a godly example. It's not enough just for us to say, we'll just talk about it and then live any way we want to. And so look at what he says in verse six again, or seven and eight, sorry. In verse seven and eight, here's what he says. He says, they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. All right, so Macedonia, you remember, that's the area where this church was. That's the region where it lived. And then Achaia is a little bit south of them. It's like the next county over, right? It's where Corinth, the church in Corinth is. And what he's essentially saying to them is, you, the word sounded forth from you. That word means like the ringing of a bell. So picture the church bells ringing in the town square, right? He's saying it was loud, like the bell that alerted the whole town that it was time for church. He's saying that you were like a ringing bell with the gospel because you spoke it. And then he says, and not only that, but as an example, your faith was an example that spread throughout Macedonia and then the neighboring region and Achaia. And then even if he's speaking hyperbolically, he says, and everywhere. In other words, the way they were living, not just what they were saying, was spreading everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. Can you believe this church? Can you believe what God is doing in them, how he saved them? Can you believe the work that they're doing because they're so full of faith, the work of faith and the labor of love? Can you believe what is going on with these people? It's astounding and amazing. He's saying they have been an example with their lives and they have spoken the truth in their words and that's what makes them ready. That's what makes them awake because they are doing that. That's the church that is ready and Paul is encouraging them along those lines. And then number nine, the church that is ready for Christ's return is a church that turns away from idols. It's a church that turns away from its idols. Look at verse nine. He says, for they themselves report, so all the people hearing about them, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. God is not in the business of sharing your affection with idols. He won't do it. He is in the business of destroying idols. Now let me define idol for you, okay? Idol, in that day and age, would have been much easier to spot because they would have been called gods themselves and they would have been fashioned in some form that you could see, but... An idol is really and truly, it's anything that you look to for value and purpose above Christ. Anything that you look to to get your value or your purpose ahead of Christ. And they're often good things that Christ would use in us or do through us that we allow to become ultimate things. The other way to think about looking to something for your value and for your purpose is just to say it's where you get your identity from. It's where you get your identity from. And there. Idols are on every corner. But here's the thing I want to tell you. Like, I mean, there's idols of power and idols of money and, and idols of our ethnic backgrounds and idols. I mean, there's idols upon idols upon idols, right, that we can find. Now, here's what I want to warn you about. Idols do not go quietly to their deaths. 
they will rage against it. Whether you speak about an idol in the culture, in the life, in love, you speak it in the life of another believer or saint that you feel, I need to confront this, or whether in yourself. Idols put up a fight. Let me give you an example. Acts chapter 19, you can go read it. It's a fascinating story about idols. In Acts chapter 19, Paul shows up in Ephesus. He declares the gospel and many people start to believe. There's a silversmith whose name is Demetrius and he makes his money off of idols. Idols always weave their way into your well-being so that putting them to death is costly. This guy's whole economic framework is based upon, his whole well-being and his career is based upon the advancement of idols, particularly to a goddess named Artemis who is the largest goddess in all of Ephesus. They had one of the world's, one of the wonders of the world was the temple to Artemis in this city. And Demetrius sees what's going on. And he says, if more and more people start worshiping this Jesus, I'm out of a job. So he gathers the other silversmiths and says, we have to do something about this. And so they start a riot. And they start whipping people up into a frenzy. What's really funny about the whole story is if you remember it, do you remember what it says? Most of the people didn't even know why they had entered into the arena and were screaming. Idols don't care if you're reasonable. They just want you to be whipped into a frenzy. And so they've whipped all these people into a frenzy about, these, about this new God and how he can't be abided by. Why? Why can't they just add him to the pantheon of all the other gods? Because Jesus won't allow it. Because Jesus says, I'm, I am the God and all the other ones have to die. They have to be put to death and go away. And so they, for two hours, it says, they shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, just whipped into a frenzy, screaming at the top of their lungs, just because they saw someone who was a Christian come and try to start to speak. And they shout them down. They won't even let Paul go into the arena because they go, Paul, that's not a good idea for you today. Paul's thinking, no, no, let me go, let me go. And he says, no, no, no. Discretion is the better part of wisdom today. Let's go ahead and back up, all right? So they take him out and away. Friends, do you see? Idols will not go quietly. They will go violently. So when you go to put an idol to death in your own life, you better be aware that it will not go quietly. When you lead among the people of God and you see a possible idol among your people and you need to point it out so that you guys can put it to death and move forward away from it, don't expect that everyone will go, thank you for pointing that out. You know, you're so right. That's not the way it works. They won't go quietly. So now listen, it makes all the more important that the church who is awake recognizes always the possibility of, a, of an inappropriate attachment to something that makes it an idol and is ready and willing to hear it and to put it to death. That's what the Thessalonians did. Do you see it? They didn't start screaming, our God, the emperor, we worship him. We worship our cults, this God, that God. No, they heard it. They saw it was true and they put their idols to death for the sake of King Jesus. And that's what every believer must do and every church that is going to be ready and awake for the coming of Christ. Now, I said at the beginning, and I'll say again, 
the question that's in front of us is how do we compare to these nine marks? I'm curious that as you go into your life groups this week and you talk with one another, I want you to take time and talk about how do you think we're doing? Are we bearing the marks of these? And you yourself, are you bearing these marks? Are these nine things true of you and are they true of our church? Because the more they mark you, the more they will mark us. The more they mark you, the more they will mark us. And we will live with one eye to heaven, eager for the return of our Lord, waiting for him, just like the Thessalonians were. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so rich. You don't pull any punches. You do not mind offending us, and you're good at comforting us. And we're so thankful for both. Lord, we, uh, as we have heard your word now, our desire is to respond to you in praise. So we pray that you'd receive our praises. It's, it's the right response of our hearts. We thank you for the example of our brothers and sisters across time, the Thessalonian church. These brothers and sisters, one day we'll be united with them in your presence. What a joy it will be to hear the stories of their work of faith and their labor of love. And our prayer too is that you would give us works to share too, works of faith and labors of love that we would have the opportunity to to share when we're together. Lord Jesus, we look to your coming. Would you receive our praise now? In your mighty name we pray, amen.